0: This is the good, the baz, and the ugly. I'm the baz. Well, that, no, I'm baz. That sounds weird if I were going around and calling myself the baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups or at least people over 18 as it may contain adult themes, sexual references and strong language. Fuck yeah! You didn't need to no, I just wanted to. Shit!
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear
0: is true. Hold uh, it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami.
1: It's not Baz
0: Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome back. There you go—the good, the bad, and the ugly. Woo-hoo! Yeah. See, look, you—you—you told we disappeared like some sexy summer fling. Probably quite quite a dirty entanglement, I imagine. Filthy, because nothing's off limits with John John in bed or on this show. Am I right, John John? You know, it <laughs> <laughs> because last season, last season was intense, right? Some of the stuff we were doing was pretty intense. We got a lot in there. There was a lot in there. There was a lot in there. We did resilience with Jordan Wiley. We'd vulnerability with getting all us. We'd really interesting chats about Scientology with uh, Scientology with Diana. We did crypto with Laurie Kyo, Which, if you invested in or even listened to, you'd be smiling like OJ all day. If you did, if you did, but you know, I'm just saying. Yeah, we did if you didn't, it's okay because it's okay. It's we it's. Can go and listen. Well, you can listen back. You can listen back to any of those shows. They're awesome because the thing is, you know, they're all still relevant because the interviews are layered. Because I'm a fucking professional, Man okay. You know, you can get something new every time you listen. So there you go. Um, and and then and then nothing. Then we disappeared. No, John John. No, Mahi. And you don't hear anything from us. Love him and leave him. That's John John's bumper sticker, <laughs> isn't it? Along with the rest of them. Yeah, well, this is it. But the thing is, we're back. And you, like your phone buzzes and you see booty call bitches. I'm, I'm lost in the metaphor that I was trying to make this out to be a summer flame. But what I mean is notifications. You're subscribed. You're back. The good, the bad, and the ugly is back. And it's going to be awesome. Season two. I'm oh, ready. Yeah. Me, John, John Mahi, all back to pour lyrical gold down your ear hole. Now, listen, my first guest is Callie Beaton. Love Callie. Callie is a stand-up comic who threw away her very successful, prestigious and somewhat coveted career, I might add, as a TV executive for Comedy Central to pursue her career as a stand-up comedian at a ripe age. I think she was her, well well into her 40s anyway. Now, straight away, she blew away all the competition out of the water. Uh, She was listed in the Chortles 2017 Comedians to Watch, uh, and her finalist credits include Fresh Comedy Nights Award, a Max Turner Prize, Bath Comedy Festival, Gotham Comedy New Talent, that's in New York City, awesome. Her debut solo show, Super Cali Fragile Lipstick, uh, was a sellout hit at Edinburgh, receiving four-star reviews, national press coverage, and picked as Best of Edinburgh Fringe. that's impressive like that's impressive to come out of the traps and do it like that that's so impressive some CV honestly she's appeared several times on BBC uh, Radio 4 including Museum of Comedy and on QI on BBC 2 she's a popular and seasoned speaker and MC my god she's just fantastic I had to speak to her this my friends this is that chat Callie thanks for coming on Firstly.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: No, because do you know what I realised? I was doing your podcast with you. Namaste, motherfuckers. Right? Which, which I immediately... Thanks for the plug. Right?
1: I'm going to hang up now. I've had the yeah. plug. That's <laughs> all I was here but for. I, Goodbye. I, I was
0: doing your podcast and about two minutes into it, I went, she's far more interesting than I am. <laughs> I'd, I'd much rather interview you than you interview me. So, so um, I suppose for, for anyone that doesn't know, right? Tell me a little bit about your background, like where you're from and what did you study in college? Did you go to college? Um, What were you doing? That kind of jazz.
1: Is this what you ask people when you're like, I should have looked their Wikipedia up. I forgot. I'm going to get them to do a kind of intro like their own little Wikipedia.
0: Well, John John would usually slide me over a piece of paper with loads of questions on it, but he's hes not there. <laughs> he's, he's just in the distance looking over.
1: Uh socially distancing, you're so going to get found out if we don't get out of this pandemic. Uh, but yeah, so... Um so my background, yes, yeah, so I, I grew up in Dorset and my parents are teachers. And I suppose the most notable thing about my childhood is that I went to an all boys school. So my parents were teachers at a boys boarding school and that's where we lived. So that's where I went to school. So I guess that explains, um, yeah, a few things <laughs> that might have made me feel a bit like an outsider in life.
0: You were the only girl in a boys boarding school.
1: Yeah, I went Holy to a boys shit, boarding that's school. Holy shit, that's and I was, a sick <laughs> before you make any inappropriate jokes i was 8 so i don't want you to start going oh you know but you had a great time uh, so i was <laughs> it was 8, eight to 13 Wrong. and um, as as i went through the school more girls came in but they were all they were there were only ever like 12 of us in a school of like 250 kids and they were all different ages and they were all staff kids so if you were a girl there it meant you were not only one of the few girls or only girl at the beginning, but you were actually a teacher's kid. So the combination of being the wrong gender for the school and a teacher's kid, which is, you know, it's like having a target on your back. So, um, and as you can see, I'm ginger. I was, I was not an endearing kid. I was like, I was a fat kid. I had glasses. I had this color hair. And I was like, yeah, I had my knee. I had like corrective footwear. I had knocked knees. I was not, I was a kid who was going to have a tough time at school. And then that is what my experience was. So I guess that's where, um, that's where it started.
0: Right. Okay. And tell me that it's just, just to understand Callie, is that your actual name is Callie? My
1: birth name's Caroline, um, but I was always called Callie. So my brother, my older brother, who's 18 months older than me, when we were little, he used to call me, he couldn't say Caroline, he used to say Callaline, And then okay. that got turned into Callie. Callie. So okay. all my life I was, um, yeah, all my life I was called Callie by people who love me and Caroline sort of for work and school. And okay. then when I took up comedy, um, I changed my, I used Callie because I had a, profile as a sort of industry person as Caroline and I needed to do my open mic circuit stuff on the quiet so I thought if I call myself Callie it's a real name but it's not the name I'm known by
0: because the hook that got me, before you were a comedian, right, before any of that, what were you doing?
1: So I kind of, I did, when I first, I went to drama school and I wanted to be a presenter and I wanted to be an actor. And you know when you're um, when you're like a really big fish in a small pond? So growing up in Dorset, I thought I was a really good actor because I was in school plays and I was like the most talented one around. But there really weren't many people around. And then when I went to London to drama college, I was like, oh, actually, I'm really shit at this compared to almost everyone else here. So suddenly the kind of field got talented. Um, and I knew a few kind of old people who were older than me who were actors. Um, I saw a guy for a bit who was a reasonably... A kind of householdy name at the time I'm not going to say who it was but he and I watched the kind of perilous nature of what even he went through like the ups and that you know you've gone through it the ups and the yeah, downs and yeah. your flavor of the month and no one wants to wants to hire you so I, I was just too insecure and probably untalented to act so then I just fell into is the that, business sorry, can side I just
0: it? ask you something is that you being extremely hard on yourself or is that like, did you, did you actually sit down one day and went, I'm, I'm actually not as good as these other, other yeah, people? Yeah, I, I
1: definitely, I'm not an actor. and Anyone who's seen my stand-up, I co- the, not the one thing I can't do. There's lots I can't do, but I can't do voices. So I'm no good at, like, physical comedy or voices or anything that's acting. But the bit I think I could have done, and I did a bit of, and I might have been able to stick with, is presenting. So I think I probably could have been yeah. a decent presenter, but I was not an actor. And so, and in those days, you know, there were, like, two and a half channels, And it was there weren't loads of opportunities to present, you couldn't just like launch your own content online. So you either were going to get commissioned by the one or two or three broadcasters, or you weren't going to have a career. So I I kind of fell into the business side of television. I, I remember my first job in TV when I was 21, was for a company called the children's channel that was literally its name uninspired but it did what it said on the tin and I had I had a split job and I partly worked in production and I partly worked on acquisitions on buying programs and then I think they sort of said to me which one do you want to do and the acquisitions job that I was about to go to Cannes if I did that job because they have like these you know tv festivals in Cannes I was like oh I want to do the acquisitions job because I wanted to go to Cannes and because of that decision I ended up in a in the kind of not uncreative side of television, because I did end up sitting on the kind of creative content boards of some big companies, but I didn't go into the full production creative experience. For someone who doesn't
0: know, acquisitions in regards to broadcasting, what's that doing?
1: So it's buying programs. So in those days, it was a dream job for me. So that job I did when I was 21 to, I think I left two, three years later, it was buying um, all the kind of content that I watched as a kid. So we were And actually stuff that, you know, um, things like the Clangers and Bagpuss and Parsley the Lion, the Herb Garden, some real sort of, I know we've lost um, any younger listeners at this point. What fucking
0: weeds do you have to smoke to buy children's programs? You must just be like like on a different level. What would it be? It was, was a, a brilliant...
1: Well, I mean, I did at the time smoke quite a lot of weed and I did love <laughs> kids' television and it was like a dream job. So literally... And then I used to have to... Um, so so I worked on buying the stuff and then I used to have to create ad breaks in the stuff. So I literally would have to sit in an edit suite and watch, you know, a half hour of whatever it was, you know, the herb garden or whatever. And then I'd have to find an appropriate place for the ad break. So, I mean, it was just the best job, really, um, for somebody that kind of age and with those um, leisure interests. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I fell into the business side of telly. And then I moved to Holland um, about three years later with my who went on to become my kid's dad, a Dutch guy. Um, and then in Holland, obviously having had an acquisitions experience and being native English speaker, everybody in TV wanted me to sell their programs. They, well, well, you should be involved in selling stuff around the world. Cause you're, you understand the business dynamic. It's this, you know, buying, selling same shit. Um, so then I got into kind of the commercial side of television. So totally not planned. And I kind of fell into this career that on paper looks impressive. You know, I, I, I had a successful career on the commercial side of some big, TV companies but honestly it was one of those things where like I when I got to you know being in my 40s I was like how did this happen like I never planned to be this person and it it's funny the things you get in life aren't always the things that blow your skirt up right I mean sometimes so everyone else is like oh my god that's amazing you've got this great career and I used to think I don't really you know by the end I was you know I had you know big job titles and and big jobs and I didn't I never felt like I was that person. So, you know, when I was a senior vice president at Viacom, you know, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a big job. But I always thought I'm kind of borrowing this this job title nobody at some point I won't be this I'm I'm not an SVP I have well, that job
0: I think anyone in that industry in any industry sometimes has that that huge level of imposter syndrome right it's like I should I shouldn't be fucking here I don't know how, I, I you know how did you how did you get here I basically bullshit I like I was in sales for years I was selling kind of high EJB web logic architects and like this was all before the Y2K kind of thing and we were making so much money and and I was I remember sitting on the tube and reading like trying trying to read a broadsheet and I was in a suit and I was like is this is this what being a fucking grown-up is because and everyone else thought it was great I was doing so well my mum was really proud but I was like miserable like just not f- fulfilled yeah it's funny how how many years were you like that because you're in such like I I, I know what you're saying but you're in such a great position such a great um. Uh, career in one way. So, how many years were was that niggling at you?
1: It was funny because I didn't. Um, I became a single mum when when I, I I used to run a production company that got bought by ITV. So this is back in the early two thousands, and that probably that was what launched me at, into sort of board level jobs. So I was quite young. I was in my early 30s. So that's quite young to be on the board of a massive company. And I was very much the kind of odd one out in that boardroom scenario. And I then became a single mum of two really small children. And I first of all think the two things are totally connected. I was completely out of my depth and desperately trying to sort of ape the behaviors of these guys around me who weren't like me and so scared of being found out. So I tried so hard to do way better than anyone around me. So as not to be found out for the fraud I thought I probably was. And then I also became a single mum and was full on trying to raise the kids. So I just think I, and then I kept getting promotions. Like I got a big promotion when I was pregnant with my second kid. I kept getting these kind of steps up the ladder And every time I got one, I didn't actually want it. It was always at the wrong time. I was like, no, you know, my kid's just been diagnosed with autism. No, I'm Mm -hmm. pregnant. No." But you don't say no. You know what it's like from your kind of, um, you know, business life career. If someone offers you a promotion, you don't say, nah, not this year, because A, they'll think you shouldn't be in the job, and B, someone else will get the job, and then you won't have your job. So there's no option to stand still. You've got to, like, embrace it. So I ended up having this sort of fairly meteoric rise at a time – when I just didn't even have enough time to think straight. And I was trying to bring the kids up and do everything. And then it was only probably in my 40s. I remember when my son left home um, to go to university. He, he he still came back weekends, but he was sort of semi-independent. And I remember like, it was like the first, I mean, you know this with, with, you know, as many kids as you have, it was like the first time I'd had a time to catch a breath in probably a decade and a half and I remember driving, leaving him at, he, he he's, um you know, as I think I said to you, he's a zookeeper. So I dropped him at this kind of agricultural college, this like Hogwarts with animals. And, and I dropped him off and settled him down. And then I literally, I got in the car and, and I just started crying. And then all these sheep came and just sat in front of the car. They were like, you're going to stay and cry for a while now because you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so I'm crying with all these sheep who are like, even if you wanted to drive on, you can't. And I had this. We weren't the most of, um... empathetic
0: of creatures at the best of times. Do you know what I mean? This is, by the way, the Andrea... second sitcom we've just morphed into somehow. But go on, you're sitting in the car, you're crying with the sheep. Yeah, you're
1: crying the sheep. The sheep are looking at me, I'm looking at them. I'm not a brain cell to rub between any of us. And then I just, I think I just realized I, I had time to start to question stuff. And I it was almost like I know this sounds like very exaggerated, but it was almost like a PTSD response of having had to cope with so much at such a level for so long that I just I I just felt a kind of um, a big shift going on. And it also occurred to me, my kids had been everything. They were always what mattered, you know, as you know, you'd always put them ahead of anything else, you know, you could you could have. And I just thought I'm going to be somebody without those kids because I had them quite young and they're going to be independent. And what the hell am I, you know, what the hell am yeah. I doing? It's like that joke, you know, you check into a hotel and they say, do you want a wake up call? Um, and you say, yes, please. And the next morning, the phone goes and a voice at the other end of the line says, what the hell are you doing with your life? Um, it was <laughs> it was that kind of moment. But I think and, a lot, yeah. and
0: especially for parents, I think a, a lot of us are so obsessed with our children, you know, for your whole life, it's just you. And then all one, one day you wake up and it's not about you anymore. I remember having that realisation with one of the babies and I was looking looking after her and I was doing something, I don't know what I was doing, listening to music in the bathroom or um, having a shave or something. And then I realised that I'd left the baby on the bed and, I, I, you know, I w- went back in and I was like, oh my God, she's just going to be here, like, forever and, and needing me. And, you know, all of a sudden, what's important for you isn't important anymore. Or you think that, you know. You
1: can't imagine when you have the babies. And for me, like I never really had, you know, you have a famously interesting relationship with your own mum. And I sort of didn't have that same confidence in where I came from. Like I didn't feel that that sort of... um I don't know, I didn't feel the roots and branches that some people maybe feel in the world. And you could, you know, we could talk about forever why that was, but whatever that was about, I kind of had my kids to give me roots and branches and I desperately wanted to be a mum. Mm. And I loved, I loved being a mum. Like I, much as I was very much, you know, had a big career and and was sort of independent in lots of ways, I was always a kind of working parent, but I just loved it. And it just felt like the thing I was absolutely born to do. So, and I just thought, well, that's it now. I've done that. I'll always be a mum. And obviously I will. But they are so independent. You know that they say, don't they, that you give your kids roots and you give them wings, and the wings bit is the bit that I think you don't realise when they're growing up. All you're trying to do is enable them not to need you, and if you've done your job well, they're going to need you not so much when they're adults. So it's kind of a really ironic thing, isn't it? The better you are as a parent, the more your kids are going to be like, I don't need you. Goodbye.
0: It is hard because you want them to have all that independence. I think I've realised it at like 45 where I actually look at my own mum and go, miracle, a miracle that she got me to a stage where I'm in charge of other little people and other people see me as responsible and somehow, I'm somewhat financially (laughs) secure in some way. Do you know? Like, I was just like, how the fuck did she do that? Because I was a lunatic.
1: What I like best is your sister's reaction. Your sister's like, none of us can fucking believe it. We're all like, like, bitching ourselves every day. How
0: did this happen? (laughs) Tell me this. You were, just to go back a little bit, right? So you were, were you were you a commissioner? Were Was talent coming into you? You were having lots of meeting with different types of presenters and comedians and...
1: Yeah, I did. So I come I mean, I guess the way in which I got to love comedy, apart from like all of us watching it as kids and stuff and just, you know, some of us loved comedy when we were growing up and some people didn't and I was someone who did. But I ended up working in comedy a few different times. So I worked at Comedy Central for the first time. I worked on South Park when it first came out. So 20 odd years ago. Um, 23, 24 years ago now. So I, I had the we repped South Park internationally. So I was in a kind of creative role. In that's that so cool! Happen- I'll just
0: throw that in that I think after really fucking really <laughs> cool. I love South Park. Like that. That's <laughs> well, dead. I brought
1: South Park to the world, but so Man. you have me to thank for that. So that was my job was yeah. was to bring. Having gone from um, being a stoned children's TV person, um, to yeah, then then the job was to get money. Uh, and international eyeballs to US content. So if Comedy Central were doing a show with Amy Schumer or mm. the guys from South Park or whatever, they would, they would be looking for how we're going to make money out of this around the world and how we're going to get the show funded. And so I was across how we would do that. So my job was fairly straightforward in principle, which was, I just had to bring in money for shows, that was it. But because we were doing shows from scratch, I wasn't selling kind of finished stuff all the time. We were also trying to get stuff made. So yeah, I would sit in content development meetings and work with talent, both to get shows funded, but then when they were funded, we would try and get more people to buy them so then if we were going to one of the i keep mentioning can like a complete dick i sound like a i sound like a kardashian right now but when we would go to places around the world some of which were glamorous and had yachts we would bring talent from comedy central or whatever with us and then we would do like you know like like when you all have gone around trying to do junkets for you know 50 ways to kill your mammy. so i would be the person who would sort of i would kind of um, be the person for the talent so i would host a couple of dinners on behalf of my kind of team and clients and the sure. talent would come. We would have like evening events and the talent would perform. What was, so what yes, was I did. going on
0: in your head internally when you were doing that? Were you like, I'm on the wrong side here? Or were you. Did you notice then? Did you think, oh, fuck, I, I'm in the wrong place here. I'm sitting at the wrong side of the table.
1: Do you know, I never thought of it like that at the time. But yes, I think I did. So when I would go and do, so so I would do like panel appearances with people and I would think, why can people in the industry that I'm in not communicate more easily? Why are some people such... They're not talented communicators. They can't give a keynote speech. They can't be plausible on a panel. I always found that weird. And I think I, so I always loved being on stage and on a podium. And if anyone needed to do a piece to camera for like Bloomberg News down there, I always wanted to do it. But I think I thought the ship had sailed. I was like, if only, and sometimes people say, oh, you should have been a presenter. And I would think, yeah, you know, maybe I should, but it was very much oh, I missed my
0: chance, that was how I felt at the time. Which is sad, right? That's, just, like, it's common as fuck. Like, it's so common that so many people just go, oh, well, missed the boat on that one, do you know? Like, like I always, I, I think I said it to you before regarding my mum, I was like, writing her eulogy is gonna be a pain in the arse. Cause like, she was a nurse for 50 years and then I get to 70 and she becomes this like Emmy award-winning celeb, do you know? And you just think, was there a moment where you just went, I'm done? Like, what happened? What what was the gear shift for you to go from being in the position of, you know, great security, um, what other people would esteem as a massive success, and go from that and think, do you know what, I'm going to sail my boat this direction now, all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a a kind of, you know, Damascene moment for me. And that was so Joan Rivers um, came with us uh, to Cannes one year. And I'd met her before and she came down with us and we did all the usual things, dinners, you know, events. And I would be introducing her, you know, so there'd be drunk, you know, TV executives and she'd be due to come on stage. And I was meant to stand up there and give the kind of corporate messaging about Viacom's, you know, priorities, priorities. And no one gave a shit about what I was going to say, let alone serious business messages. So I would just try and keep things warm and keep things going. And it was... Her who said to me um she said at the end of that trip, and it wasn't long before she died, um which was not connected to the to the dinner I had with her and she said um she said to There's me a lot you of drunk think executives
0: <laughs> God, what did she say um, go on
1: why did you why did you spike Joan Rivers drink but no, I was um and she said, to, and we talked quite a bit, we had had a real it never occurred to me until I met Joan Rivers. I loved her. She was an icon to me. I grew up thinking women could be funny because of people like Joan Rivers and Dawn French and, you know, Victoria Wood. So, but Joan Rivers was very much up there for me. I think she was possibly the first ever female comedian I saw do something like stand up related on TV, but it hadn't occurred to me till I met her. What a sort of feminist icon she was because you know when she was doing stuff in the 60s and 70s she was busting through the glass ceilings of Hollywood and hearing the stories that she told me in that trip I couldn't believe what she'd gone through and that we're kind of as a world going oh there's an older woman being a bit crude or a bit edgy with her comedy when actually we were missing the point which was she was a really important voice and she bust through stereotypes like no one could believe and so she said to me on the last, that, that last time I saw her, she said, you know, you should think about doing stand-up, um, Callie, because what you're doing for me, you know, I've seen you do stuff that is pretty much stand-up. You're like warming up and, and that's what you do. That's what, that's all you need to be able to do. And I said, Joan, I'm 45. I've got two kids. I'm a single mom. One of my kids has special needs and I have a massive job, day job. Like, it's too late. And she looked at me and she said, Callie, I'm 81 you're going to look back at this moment in your life and you're going to think I was in the thick of it. Why didn't I? And it took an 81 year old woman telling me at 45, that 45 is not old. And I am forever grateful. Anyone would have said that to me because every age we get to, we think, okay, Oh, you know, if only I'd done that. And, and she just, and even now at 51, I'm like, yeah, 45 is young. Thank God. I started at 45. Do you
0: know what's also amazing about that, that, it would be Joan Rivers that could see you. Like you're surrounded in an industry that was all based around entertainment and talent. And so many people are walking by you all the time. But for Joan Rivers to be the one to kind of go and see you for you and go, this is what you should be doing. I don't know what you're fucking playing at. So after she said that, did you stew on that for a while? Did it it play in your mind for, for long?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had been, it's funny, because I never thought about um, having, I think the comedy thing was just kind of, I was going to say an accident waiting to happen. Hopefully, it's not an accident. But um, I did, I did find a book, like recently, that was given to me by a boyfriend, I had a couple of years before that Joan Rivers conversation, and, and it was a kind of how to get into stand up. So I must have talked about it and thought about it, or why did he buy me that book? And then she died within six months of that trip. And when that happened, it, made me just think god you know she seemed invincible to me like she just looked like she was going to be going forever and you Mm -hmm. never quite knew what age she was and she you know she had like a team of makeup and hair people and you're just like she's going to be held together with hair lacquer and you know (laughs) chutzpah and she ain't going nowhere so when she I think it was a comp it was never kind of a conscious neat plan because nothing ever is but I I just yeah I put myself through one of those kind of stand-up courses you know that culminates and you're doing a bit of stand-up and I just knew I wanted to give it a go and as soon as I did you? Did I did you a course, work? yeah. I, I what did was Logan that like? Murray's like a week
0: Two weeks a month, six months. What was... It's
1: about eight weeks um, of evening. Like you do a, a class a week, and then at the end you do a five-minute spot. And when I and it's funny because like when I started out, my stagecraft was pretty good because I'd spent my whole career wow. communicating and holding a wow. microphone, and so I, I could see. I, and because I'm a bit older, I think people thought, "Oh, you seem like you know what you're doing." But of course, the bit I missed is that um it ate, well it's about being funny obviously you do need some fucking jokes but the other thing that I, I was being playful so i'd spent my whole career hiding who i really was and pretending to be this polished glossy executive and nobody wants to see a polished glossy anybody as a comedian right they want to think they want to be able to laugh They want to know you've got Achilles heels, you're flawed, you're fucked up, your husband left you, one of your legs is shorter than the other. They do not want you to be glossy. So I had to discover how to fuck around because I hadn't fucked around. I'd been such a grown up. And I remember in those classes, Logan would sometimes get us to do a whole evening where we just pissed about and he was like, just discover your inner child and... And I would get like angry. I'd be like, "What the fuck are you wasting my time talking about my inner child? Like, I've I've got a load of things to do. I've got kids at home. I've got i I'm just trying to do this thing." Yeah. And it took me a while of comedy to realize it's all about. It's meant to be fun. You're meant to play. So the biggest challenge I had wasn't the stagecraft and performance. It was like how to how to let go enough to actually be funny. And yeah. that took me ages.
0: Did you share it with anyone? Did you like because it's such a, I like I I know if I do something on stage I like. I, I rarely on the first night even want anybody I know in the audience, right? It's just a a kind of... If I go out and see a sea of people I know, it's kind of just... I just go, fuck, they're there, you know? I don't like it. But did you, as you were doing the classes and you were getting closer to your first five minute stand up, had you shared that with anyone else? Did anyone at work? or? I,
1: I did tell a few people, like my, my then um, assistant, who I've known forever and is one of my kind of, if anyone ever says to me, who's inspired you in your life, it's always Natasha. She's just the most incredible person. So she knew, um, but I kept it really hidden from people. And I still kept it hidden for quite a few months. And the way it got discovered by Viacom was I used to go to New York. I reported into the New York office of Viacom. So, like, once every four to six weeks, I'd spend a week in New York. So, of course, I started gigging in New York on the open mic circuit, because what, why not? You know, when Before you start you out... New York. Just...
0: Before you go to New York, the five minutes that you did, how did that go?
1: I was awful. I did it, like... Um, it was like I did it as a recital. It's like I'd learnt my lines and I read out my five minutes and I could see everybody. And also I did the thing you always do when you start out, which is just be really rude and talk about like your vibrator and think everyone's going to be like, Oh my God, that's so funny. That woman has a vibrator. Not realizing everyone talks about shit like that and it's really not distinctive. So it was just awful. And I could see, i knew it was awful because i i knew the gap between what i wanted to be and what i was so i said to myself if i do another gig like that i'm never i'll do one more gig and if it's as shit as that this is not for me and then i did a thing called the comedy at virgins at the cavendish arms in south london which is a bit of a sort of famed open mic night and they yeah. have a little competition where you win a trophy the size of your thumb and I won that competition on my second gig I mean it's such a non-competition it's pathetic to even say it oh but my it god which is me-
0: is is like a fucking Grammy <laughs> if you're if you just started in comedy though like, that's, that's what amazing. it was yeah so it felt oh.
1: like so I had that that tiny thumb sized trophy and all it meant was that of the 18 comedians who turned up that night I was the least shit that's all that meant uh, <laughs> no, the shit that, of- <laughs> I love
0: do you know what I love about I've, I did a show last year, I remember telling you this, right? I did a stand-up show. The first night, I don't think I took a fucking breath. Like I came off, I was it was such nervous energy and it was like this long monologue that I had that <laughs> I, I just hammered through. The, the thing was about an hour and it came down to about 55 minutes and by the end, it was like an hour and a half show, do you know what I mean? But I'd done it that first, like 55 minutes. But I think there's a release from just putting your foot in the water, right? Just yeah, having der- the balls, having the cojones to actually just get up and do something you're terrified of. Like even letting yourself just- do that is such a massive first step, isn't it?
1: And it is like, I mean, you and I have both, um, whatever the past tense of skydived, we've skydived. And (laughs) when you get out of a plane, there's that sensory overload, right? And they warn you about it. And they say, when you get into free fall, I think at the beginning they say you won't know what the hell's going on for like three to five seconds. And as you get more used to skydiving, if you go, you know, take it further, um, which I did, that period of time will get less and less because your whole mind and your body get used to the fact that you can jump out of a plane. But your primal instinct is to literally like everything switches off. You're in the fetal position. You don't know what the hell's going on. And I think stand-ups like that is like, Oh my God, you're on the stage, you've got the mic, you've got the lights, and it's like sensory overload, only it can go on for the whole set. Like you come off your, I didn't know, I don't know what just happened. And it takes a long time, I think, as a performer. And it's interesting hearing your experience. You know, you're very used to performing, but there's something about the solo. there's nowhere to hide it's It's your words it's you anything that goes wrong you can't be like oh the playwright was shit or the director was terrible it's like oh no that was kind of on me so yeah i I was the same it's like a race to the finish right when you first start it's like can i just get the words out can i get out of here alive that's a good job done
0: so tell me this you got your trophy i fucking love you i just have to say this (laughs) i just think you're the best thing so you got your trophy and then so that must have given you a real like. I know it's only a small thing. You play it down, but that must have given you psychologically a really good boost, right?
1: I knew that. I, I knew that there was something in it, and I'd worked with quite a few of the big comedy producers over the years through different bits of my career. So I'd seen people like John Bishop, Jason Manford I'd known them from when they were virtually not quite open micers but certainly not names and I'd watched them become names as I had with a lot of US talent so I really did understand you know lots of comics go oh my god if I knew what the journey was going to be like I'd never have started out on it. I knew what it was going to be like and I knew how shit people had to be before they could get good so I was like totally willing to go into open mic nights, no No one knew what I did for a living no one gave a shit who I was whether I had kids no one cared all anyone cared about was am I can you be funny and it was so liberating for me because I was like oh my god it, it felt so good not to have that status and I just was like this is amazing no one cares about my backstory all and I can be anyone I want and at 45 to literally, and no one cared about my age. Like I felt really old compared to the twenty-something comedians, but no one cared if if I was funny. Everybody just assumed I was like one of them. And I thought, what a prop! When people talk about there being a lot of bias um, and discrimination in the comedy business, there are issues with that. But my god, it's a meritocracy because if you're funny, you will get booked, and you know. And actually, if anything, as a woman who's funny, because there are still less female comedians, once you become a solid pair of hands at some of the big clubs, they will always keep booking you because they want, you know, a lot of these clubs really want to have more diverse bills and they want to have women on there. So yeah, I did, I really didn't think I was good and I really wasn't, and I'm not just being self-deprecating, but I thought for my level in comedy, I'm okay. And if I can keep doing it, then I might one day actually be okay.
0: Because there'd be a part of me that goes, because that journey is so hard, you know, to to succeed in, that just shows that you're kind of, you're minerals. Do you know what I mean? Because you know more than anyone, you know when you're 21, fucking anything's possible. Like there's shit my kids come out with sometimes. I'm just thinking, (laughs) they don't have a clue. They're all talking about their yachts and their, I don't know, nonsense. Do you know what I mean? If you could bottle that confidence you have when you're young of possibility, Do you know, I think apart from fear, I think the strongest thing is hope. Do you know, and and for you to actually think to yourself, I I believe somewhere inside me that I can go do that. So what did you do? Did you just do as many gigs as you could? Did you just start gigging everywhere and getting hours in?
1: I gigged like a motherfucker. So yeah, I was gigging, you know, five nights a week and I was gigging everywhere I could. So that's why when I would go to the States, because I was there, you know, one week in, however many I kept gigging, I was like, I'm not going to take a week off gigging. So I got to do some gigs over there. You do get a long way with a British accent and ginger hair in the States. That's a winning combination. They think, you're like, you know, a royal or a Weasley or something and you get a lot of attention.
0: You were working there as well. You we were like yeah, fucking Clark day, Kent or yeah. something. So we were going to work during the day and then gigging at night. Nice.
1: Yeah, and it was all a secret. So literally I would say so the peak, because obviously oh, the it. big cheeses love were us. all, were all in are That's just
0: it. so cool. Callie, <laughs> you come for dinner. No, 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 I've got to be somewhere. big clown nose and off she runs. Do you know what I mean? I just plain, think that's that, insane.
1: That was literally it. I would. I remember one, well, there was, so the bit that was the kind of defining moment in me getting found out. So my Superman disguise getting, you know, revealed to be Clark Kent was when, um, so Gotham Comedy Club in New York, which was a comedy club. Club like Comedy Central did a show live from Gotham, and it was for me like a really important venue. It meant a lot to me, and it is it's where Jerry Seinfeld does a lot of his stuff. It was a venue that mattered to me, and I went along and did a couple of open mics, and then did they they had a new act competition, so I did the new act competition and 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 got through, and then got through to the next round, and then and and managed to tie my business trips into being there for the next heats, and then I went to the semi final thinking, well, this is definitely as far as I'm getting. I'm totally out of my depth now, because a lot of the new acts in the States have been going 10 years, you know, they're not new acts at all. So I was with all these people who were like proper decent comedians. Some of them had done telly. And then I did the semi-finals, and then they announced and, and I was through to the final. So then I had to come, I was due to go home the next day and the final was in three days. I had to go home because of childcare, so I flew back to London then I was like I cannot ask the company to pay for me to come out because they'll be like why the hell are you coming back so I did a flight on air miles to come back I stayed in a on a friend's couch because I was like I wasn't getting expenses for this and I said at work I've had to come in for some uh, I didn't want to take holidays from work because I wanted them from my for my kids so I said um, could I work from the office I've had to come back on personal business I just want to base myself in the office you're not paying for my trip so they were like sure they didn't ask anymore and then the chairman of Viacom, who was my boss uh, and a big, you know, big big figure, he's still there. He came down to my, um, the office I was working in in the office building on Times Square. And he was like, are you Callie Beaton? Because he knew me as Caroline. And what had happened was there was a poster like massive poster and times square with like oh. all the finalists oh <laughs> and he'd seen my face and he was like and I did look a bit different in it but it was obviously me so he said is that you and and I said yeah it's me and he sort of he said right I'm gonna go and have a think about this uh-huh. and he sort of walked off to his big corner office and I was like shit I'm gonna have HR on the phone I'm go-. and then he just called me into his office and he just looked at me and he said um he said two things he said one are you going to guarantee me that you're going to stay here in this job for at least another 18 months because I made a shitload of money for them right they needed yeah. me and I was like yeah definitely I'll stay and and he said and can I come to the thing tonight <laughs> so, <laughs> that's so. brilliant. so oh that's how god. I got kind of outed so it went from sort of um and I really did I felt like I'd been having an affair or something I was like oh my god this is that's terrible. what I
0: thought you start going through your desk and find itching powder and fake spiders and shit inside it like do you know? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's brilliant. That's just so cool. So
1: yeah, I kept it, but I did keep, and I kept it a secret from the guys at Comedy Central for ages because it was so embarrassing. I thought, you know, I don't want them to come to a gig. Like they are proper, comedy people. And everyone was like, why don't you try and get them to give you a show? I was like, because I'm shit at the moment. I don't deserve a show. Like, I don't want a show when I'm not good enough to have a show because it'll be shit. So I was like, no way am I calling in favors. I'll just, I felt like I was a plumber that was doing their apprenticeship. And I was like, until I can clean out a block toilet, I am not going to do the central heating in someone's house. And I deserve to be cleaning out toilets at the moment. And that's what I did. So I did, yeah, just a lot of gigs. And, you know, people said, oh, you seemed really like it was nice of you to be so humble it's like well i was completely humble i was a total beginner and of course i was humble what what did i have over anyone else you know absolutely nothing so yeah so it was um it was a it, it all just kind of went more quickly than i thought it would and i was out of the closet
0: and sometimes you need to prove cuz i was the same and i'd already i'd already been known do you get me i knew i could sell out a theatre or whatever, but but I didn't want anyone to know. I kept it so low-key. I remember people in my production were going, why don't you talk about it? And I'm like, I just not, re- I just, I, it, I wanted it to be brilliant or nothing. Do you know that kind of way? I wasn't willing to do that kind of in between. For anyone who wanted to do comedy and break it down into a kind of scientific um, formula, say, What what do you need to do? Because there's so many people out there who ache. They have a pain that they want to go and do something like get up and do comedy, right? But I think fear becomes such a big obstacle. And I I agree with with Joan Rivers. I think later in life, you look back and you go, "What the fuck was I scared of? Like what? Like Mm, you know, what
1: did I have to lose? And actually, as you get older, you've got less to lose, right? You
0: you. I think it's that assumption that people really give a shit what happens to you one way or another, you know, like <laughs> really at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It only matters what you want for you, you know. But was there was there a formula that you had to take on comedy?
1: You know when you're like the funniest person in the room and you assume that that means you'll be a good comedian and I used to be the funniest person in the room quite often. And I could like go out for dinner with big comedians and I'd be really funny. And actually, I'm less likely to be like that nowadays, I think, because that was where all my funny went. So, like, I was in a really serious job and I was kind of being a bit subversive to be irreverent and funny. It's so different when you get paid to be funny. So like when I get booked, I do a lot of corporate speaking, as you'll imagine. So I do loads of like after dinner speaking, keynote speaking. And I always say to them, please don't bill me as a comedian. Bill me based on my business credentials. Tell everyone I brought South Park to the world, whatever you want to say. And then, when I'm doing, and then part of my story is always revealing that I've become a comedian. And I talk about the story and I talk about the show I did when I was 50 called Invisible, which was like the biggest show I'd done. And it was like, I am a 50 year old woman. I refuse to go gently into that good night. So it's all about that. But if somebody bills me as a comedian, and then I get up on stage, they want my they want me to be on live at the Apollo. Yeah. If they bill me as a keynote speaker, then I seem incredibly funny and talented as a yeah. keynote speaker. And that is probably the biggest thing. You know what you have it, I'm sure as well. People will come up to you. They'll think that, oh, I could do the thing you do with your mum. Like I could do mm-hmm. that. I could do, you know, you're just being yourself. But to be yourself on stage or on screen and deliver the goods is much harder than people realize. So just being funny down the pub. It's a good start, but but stuff that's stand up ready is not the same stuff so that's cro- a good The material you
0: were writing, you would what would you write? Would you write like 20 minutes, go into a club, test? take five minutes out of the 20 or what
1: the the kind of anatomy of it for which sounds very grand but the way people work it up from nowhere and i said to you when you were doing my podcast i was like wow you went in but like going straight in with an hour it Mm. takes most stand-ups like years to get an hour so you literally start with a five minutes and then keep trying to get that five minutes good so you ditch stuff so you'll, you'll end up hopefully after a few months with a decent five minutes then someone will say oh do you want to come and do a 10 And you shit yourself because you're like, I've only got that five. That's it. I've got nothing. Then you work a 10, which you'll also have to keep working. And for a comedian, that takes a long time. And then to get a tight 20 might take you years. You might literally take... Before you can do the big clubs, if if you're a solid twenty minute act in a big club within four or five years, you're doing really well. Which yeah. is why when you said you had your hour, I was like, shit! how did
0: you completely get straight different out the for game? me because I don't. I, when I walk on stage, people have already bought into coming to see me. They're not. You, do you know what I mean? Like, it's a completely different thing. I can already, and a lot of the stuff that I've it's it's material that I've had for so long. Do you get me? Now to write a second show would be much harder I think you know but but, but doing those five minutes and I remember being in a comedy club in London you see Irish comedy clubs are very nice people are nice like you're talking about corporates when you sit at a corporate half the people don't you know they're there for the free drink and the chicken wings you know yeah, they, they don't, give a shit. They, they don't yeah. really care that they're really really hard gigs but like comedy clubs in London I was quite because you get like 25 city boys sitting at a table and they're just like, you know, they just paid 25 quid in and they're like, make me laugh.
1: When I realise that if people are heckling you and giving you a bad time, everybody in the room wants the heckler to be taken down. They want you to win. Mm. So if you remember, it's just the heckler or that group of hecklers who are a pain in the ass. but the room's on your side. If you can do something with tricky people or with a heckler early on, You just have the audience. They'll do anything for you. It's really rewarding to me to sort of like be like, no, fuck you. You may have made an assumption based on what you think I look like, but you need to rethink that. And that's a joy to be able to do that in comedy, right? Because you're challenging what people assume about things, which is a great, lovely way to live.
0: Was there anything that helped you dissolve that anxiety or that fear to make such a big change in your life? I know you did it kind of gradually and I, I love how you did it. I just think... It was so. It's such a clever way to do it. It's just to secretly kind of dip into it and dip out, and and still have your your you know your your alter ego. But like when you made that commitment, was there something? Was that just confidence? Was that just was that just your own confidence, your own self belief that that kind of dissolved the fear of committing to doing it fully?
1: I just became more and more sure that what I was doing for my day job didn't fit me anymore. And I'd always say I used to work as an executive coach for years. um, And I alongside my day job. And I always used to say to people, you know, if you're just doing this for the money, it won't sustain if that's all that's keeping you in your job. I'm not saying we don't all need to earn money. You know, I was the only breadwinner I had to earn money, but I guess it was a kind of burnout and a response to having raised my kids, particularly the challenges of my son, who's you know the best thing that's ever happened to me, but also mm-hmm. the hardest. And all of that happened and something had to give. So I ended up just pulling the plug on Viacom and they were, by the way, I should—I always do want to say on the record, they were so supportive of me. They could have been real assholes. When I started being on QI and on the radio all the time, they might have been like, this is weird. Like, we are not having you doing that when you work for us. But they were really supportive. And when I left, I just assumed that I was going to kind of nosedive into nothing happening for me and I wouldn't earn, earn any money and it would be a disaster. But I had to do it and i just didn't realize that there was this corporate speaking circuit and that there was all the, there were all these different things you can do as a performer and that maybe my experience might be interesting to people. I used to be this per, board level TV person and I'm a comedian mm. and I'm a menopausal woman. It suddenly people were interested in the story and I wasn't having to edit bits for my company. It, and it really came out of like some of your best, I guess that's where 50 Ways came from, right? Came from a sort of yeah. dark time where you were, you got to do some shit. And I There's think- There's no motivator better I than
0: I desperation. I think we said this. Exactly it's the that. best fucking motivator ever is just like, I got to yeah. do this. Like, But I think I think especially with the way every. Everything is at the moment. I think there's so many people that are are at a stage in their life where they've been left to themselves for too long. There's that expression over here is my mum used to always use it as you just got far too much time on your hands. Like you're just sitting around thinking about yourself all day long rather than doing (laughs) shit. So but a lot of people are like that at the moment and they're just kind of going and not even in an overly romantic way, but just in a is this the best I can be? Is this is this the best outcome for me, for my happiness? And not for the monetary, not for any of that stuff, but just for me to get up in the morning and clap my hands and go, do you know what? I, I, I'm happy today. This is what I want to do, you know? It's
1: daring to think, when I used to be a coach, I used to say to people, you know, there's lots of exercises you can do. There's one called the future perfect where you span out what your life would be if anything were possible and you couldn't fail and let yourself kind of limitlessly and abundantly write that down and then see how much of it might be possible. It's amazing how much of it might be possible if you let yourself do the first bit. And one of the things that I say to people, and it's probably the topic I get asked to speak to most on the corporate circuit is change and reinvention and i think it's really tempting to think that if you're going to make a big change it may well mean downsizing mm. but that's all about getting rid of the trappings of your successful life and but what i what i love to say to people and by the way this is not a redemptive story i am flawed i am fearful i'm fucked up like everyone else i don't know the answers i don't know where this is going so this is not like oh i've got i've got this all sorted i still don't but what i do know is that you can take everything you have been before with you And take it on to the next thing you do. So instead of trading out that boardroom career into comedy, I feel like I took it with me and I'm doing this and I've, my life has got bigger and more visible and my world is getting bigger at a time when most people's words get smaller. So the thing I would say, and this is really relevant at the moment when people have lost everything in the pandemic and people are panicking and they're thinking things will never be okay again, is that out of change, to say out of change can come opportunity is obvious but you can be all the stuff you were before you lost everything and more. It isn't Mm -hmm. about, could I ever get to that point? Could it be compromised? Could I manage? You might be able to do something that, you know, there's that saying, if someone can do it, anyone can do it. And I know that you could say, well, look, I'm never going to be able to run a marathon like Mo Farah. And you could be literal about it. But if you take the spirit of that, then I think there is some hope in that. And to take the energy from the people who say you can't. I've had so many people say to me, you can't do it. Or not not, not you can't do comedy, but this won't work. What are you doing? You should go back and get a proper job. And I think, well, isn't it lovely to have an opportunity just quietly to prove them wrong? Yeah. And anyone can do that. So I think nobody likes to be underestimated. And that, and, and most of all, we shouldn't underestimate ourselves. So that's probably the biggest thing I, I would say that I try to get across to people.
0: Yeah, that's... God, you're great. Honestly, I knew. Did I tell you, John? John, She's much fucking more interesting than me to chat to. You're honestly, because I just think, I just fell in love with the story. I just think it's a really, but I, I know as well Like you can't forget how incredibly hard you've worked at it as well. Like, it's not just like, oh, I've got to be a comedian (laughs) and you become a comedian. You have to also give 100%. 100%. You have to work as hard as possible to to try and fulfill that ambition. But listen, uh, hopefully, you never know. Maybe the Vodafone comedy lasts or maybe you'll get over to Dublin for a few gigs or, you know. You must be dying to get back. Just having fun.
1: Yeah, there's no fun. Like, all this this stuff that's like fun, like professionally and personally, all that kind of weird shit that happens. You know, when you're off to a gig or you're off somewhere and Mm. you have like a funny conversation. Or so you, you know, all those anecdotes you get from life. It's like there's nothing fucking happening. Well, you know, when like, I try and write material, I'm like, what am I going to write it about? Like sitting in this room and talking to my cat and my son not doing the washing up. Like, what what's what's going on? Oh,
0: I was wrestling my eight-year-old before I came down here and she went, oh, my nuts. And I was like, what did you say? And she went, my nuts. And I went, you don't have nuts. What the f-? Like I, I think I'm actually damaging my children really bad. And then she slapped her own ass and went, I have coconuts. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? I need this, this child needs to leave this house and see a swimming pool or a playground. Or, you know, like they're seriously fucking messed up. Like, so, um, but. But I, I, think everyone's like that. Everyone's just dying to get back, but dying to get back and have some fun and just and just
1: live venues. You know, oh, we got to get back into real. I mean, I don't want to do any more Zoom gigs. I'm just like sick of doing them on Zoom. It's, I mean, I can do them and we can all do them, but it's there's no fun. And even if it is fun, what do you do after? It's just walk into your, you know, bedroom next door and put your t- pajama bottoms on and you know, like great, what a great post gig high.
0: <laughs> <It's done. laughs> Callie thanks a million You're the best guest ever thank you very much
1: my pleasure it's been really nice to come back welcome no, back to talk yeah. to you for a round two
0: listen it was brilliant it was great it was everything I think people are really going to get a get a kick out of that thanks so much she's the best isn't she honestly you can listen to Callie's new podcast by the way namaste motherfuckers great name uh, which is coming out very very soon and um, it's funny, you know, like, I, I I was chatting to the kids recently, right, and and I have a couple of them leaving school, and I was saying to them, if you can try and pursue doing something that you love, it'll make life a lot easier for you, because whatever you do, half the time, you're going to fucking hate it, like, <laughs> because it's a job, like, you know, I love what I do, but half the time, it's a pain in the arse, like, because it's work, you know, um, it it's the same advice, no matter what age you are, like, Fear can be crippling, but listen to me, there's a freedom in knowing that someday you're going to realize that there's nothing to be afraid of and change. Like sitting there dreaming and wishing. That you were doing something else, like stop wishing, stop wasting your time just wishing, be proactive, stop worrying about what other people think. If you're focused and you're willing to give it everything, everything, then you're already way ahead. There's a big difference between dreaming and ambition. Dreaming, you're floating around out there. It's all hairy, fairy. And When it's ambition, your feet are firmly on the ground. You make a plan. You do it for you. You deserve it. What can I say? That's it. Am I right, John-John? You're always right, Bass. that's why he's never out of the band. Honestly, Um, listen. As always, you can get in touch on Instagram at Bash Maui. You can subscribe uh, so you don't miss an episode. You leave us a comment. You could just show some love for John John and for Mahi. You know, they 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 need that. They do. They do. They do deserve it. They do deserve it. Um, We're going to be back next week. Um, Same bat channel. That's kind of it episode one of season two out of the way good luck in the cup